Hey guys, it's Thomas Lang here. I'm on Musicians on the Record. This is going to be a great show. Let's do this. Boom. Hi, welcome to Musicians on the Record. I'm David Ward. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is the show where we bring you the musician's story. And on the show today, we are answering the question, what would Superman look and sound like if he played the drums? Thomas Lang is on the record. Thomas is just a drum machine, a human drum machine, who makes the incredibly difficult look super easy on the drums. It's incredible. Playing with such artists as Peter Gabriel, Glenn Hughes of Deep Purple, Falco, I didn't even know that he played with Falco, Rock Me Amadeus uh, before this interview, that was very cool, Stork, Paul Gilbert, Bonnie Tyler, and so many more. We have Thomas Lang on the record for you today. We'd love to hear from you wherever you're listening from in the world. Let us know which musician story you'd most love to hear. We'd invite you to subscribe to the audio podcast here, and if you want to watch this interview with Thomas and all of our interviews, they live on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and our website at musiciansontherecord.com. Here's my time with Thomas Lang. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you, David. <laughs> I, I got to say, I'm not exaggerating here. I've seen videos of you and, you know, the, the whole 10,000 hours concept. You got to put in 10,000 hours to be really good at something. Right. It's pretty clear you've put in more than 10,000 hours. Yeah, I think 10,000 hours it maybe gets your foot in the door. Yeah. Uh, but that's not the end of it, for sure. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. good start for beginners, right? So, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Tell me about how did music and the love of drums start for you? Um, well, it's, it's a silly story. I saw a drummer play on television when I was four years old in Austria. I found out later it was um, the, the band Sea Level, and um, the drummer started the song. He had a huge setup with, you know, 15 concert toms. And he, and he started the song with a drum fill. And everybody looked at him. And he seemed to be in charge and in control. And uh, I just loved that. And it, it seemed uh, it, it intrigued me somehow because he was the only one in the band sitting down. Everybody else had to stand up. And he seemed to be the boss of the band. And uh, he cued the band into the song and everything. So uh, drums were on my radar. And a few days after seeing that uh, TV show, I went to a local fairground with my parents. And there was a band playing. And I, you know, as a four-year-old, I walked straight up onto the bandstand while the band was playing, straight towards the drums. And I held on to the bass drum hoop from the front of the kit. And the guy, of course, in the, you know, mid-flight, going for it full on, and I just felt that volume of the kick drum on my chest and in my chest, and I felt it thumping through my whole body. And looking up at this giant drum set with, you know, the cymbals moving and the shiny chrome and everything, it just blew me away. And I was completely hooked from that moment on, you know. I was, I was infected with the drum virus right then and there. And I'm still suffering from it today. Right. <laughs> it's a good illness to have, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. That's pretty incredible. What was it that you, I mean, you're feeling the power, especially of the bass was, drum, right? Yeah, I was feeling 
the power for sure. And I was also just visually experiencing this, you know, very complex sort of the, the mechanics of it. I mean, like I was obviously holding onto the kick drum, but I saw the guy's other foot moving on the high hand and one hand was up here and the other one was up there and everything was going at the same time. And I was just completely blown away by the control and, 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 the complexity of the movement. It was like, you know, riding a bicycle with, you know, a little horn here and there going beep, beep, and a little bell here and pedaling at the same time. It was just this physical experience. And at the same time, the power and the, the, the music and the rest of the band, it was loud, you know, and it was just a, 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 a an incredible experience. Right. And uh, I think because my first kind of approach quite literally to the drum set was uh, came from the bottom up if you like you know that inspired a lot of my early practicing i loved kick drums you know uh, from the beginning and i was totally into foot control and the whole coordination thing and i think it you know the the inspiration uh, is rooted in that very first experience yeah. And did your folks kind of go, what did they say or do when you're hugging the bass drum? Where's he going? <laughs> oh, they just had a laugh, you know, and uh, uh, maybe they should have intervened because literally, you know, five minutes later, I, I started nagging my mom that I needed drum lessons. And I needed a drum set. And, and they probably went, oh, right. we should have intervened there right. you know, too late now. Right. Can we get a violin, please? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so you grew up in Vienna, Austria. Is that correct? Yes. Just yeah. outside of Vienna. Yeah. Just outside of Vienna. Tell, tell me, tell the audience a little bit about what that was like, uh, what that experience was like. Uh, yeah, I had a wonderful childhood. It was a very quaint little town that I grew up in. Um, a lot of uh, music, a lot of culture. Um, my parents, both very musical and interested in music, not professional musicians, but very passionate uh, my mother and father both sang in local choirs. My mother used to play the piano and made sure we all get music lessons very early on. Uh, me and my siblings also. My father played the violin as a kid and still to this day is a very enthusiastic um, singer. He likes opera and uh, whatever, you know, Eastern European folk songs. And so very, you know, musical family and um, very creative family. Um, and the environment was, you know, it was a great, quaint little town, very close to Vienna, just outside of Vienna, actually. Uh, and, um, of course, I indirectly grew up in Vienna because it was so close. I just hopped on the train and 25 minutes later, I was in the center of Vienna. Yeah. And, of course, Vienna is a mecca for classical music, you know, uh, absolutely wonderful city, lots of music, lots of jazz also. Incredible musicians, great schools, incredible history of, of music and composition and uh, science, a very intellectual, very artistic city. And, uh, yeah, I had, a, I had a really wonderful, very inspired sort of childhood. Yeah. And so when you started nagging your folks with the drum set, when, when did that first drum set come and what was it? It was uh, pretty much right uh, on my fifth birthday. Um, a few months after that first experience, you know, walking up to the bandstand there. And um, I must have been nagging, you know, very vehemently and intensely for a few months because on my fifth birthday, I got a snare drum okay. and drum lessons. Wow. Uh, and my mom hooked all that up. And 
she she said you can play the drums if you take the lessons right away and i was very lucky that in my town um we had an incredible drum teacher who was the chair of the vienna philharmonic orchestra in classical percussion wow and um his name was johann hengst and he became my first drum teacher and that was just pure luck because he was incredible as of course a great musician himself but also an incredible teacher and um, one of the most beneficial things I think that ever happened to me in my playing and music career is that he taught me how to practice first. Mm-hmm. Um, the first few weeks of seeing him once a week was learning how to practice, what to do when I go home, how to do it, you know, because most musicians never really learn how to practice. They kind of stumble upon something that works for them over the years mm-hmm. and kind of work out after a while what, you know, shows results and what's efficient or not. But I started playing and practicing with a real method and a concept with a plan, with practice rules, with the practice logbook and specific material with goals and figuring out weaknesses and so on. So it was very methodical and that helped me incredibly along the way. For you, your story, but also for other drummers, uh, including myself, can Mm -hmm. you, can you talk about, and maybe you teach this way as well. How do you practice? Well, uh, I always practiced with, goals in mind and that was the most important thing this is what my first teacher taught me you have to know where you're going if you're you know going from a to b the a is you now this is status quo this is you with all your skill and and ability today but you want to be better so let's say b stands for better the better you in the future you have to have a plan to get from a to b it's you know the it's the equivalent of of driving somewhere in the car if you want to drive from new york to los angeles you want to know where you're going are you heading east or west you know uh, very simple and it's the same with with developing any skill especially you know playing a musical instrument you have to know where you're going what kind of player do you want to be what kind of music you want to play how well do you really want to play that instrument and so on and uh, once you know what your destination should be be you know um then it's very easy to stay on track and as soon as as you you know leave a garage in new york uh you have to know at the first junction which way to turn where you're going east or west south or north whatever if you just keep heading west you know you're you know you're gonna be in pretty good shape right and that's the same thing you know in in drumming for example you have to know where you're going all the time and uh, this is important to stay on track and, and be consistent in your practicing. So that was one of the things, just setting goals and achieving goals. And, you know, long-term goals, are, of course, a string of short-term goals, you know. Yes. And that was one important thing I learned right away, to, to, to set goals and, and check things off the list all the time. You also figure out what is it that separates you today from that goal? Mm-hmm. What are the, 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 the obstacles in the way? If you want to be a jazz drummer and you can't swing, there's a problem. If you can't play brushes, that's a problem. If you don't know any real book standards, there's another problem. So if your goal is being a jazz drummer, just write down the biggest weaknesses that separate you from that goal today. And then work on those weaknesses every single day. You know, prioritize. That was a super important thing that he taught me. Like, what is the biggest weakness that separates you from your goal? 
and then work on that. What's the second biggest weakness? You know, that's second on the list. The third biggest and so on. And you work your way down a list of weaknesses until you've eliminated all these weaknesses, which means you end up with strength in all these areas, which means that you have pretty much achieved your goal. It's very simple, very methodical. Um, He also taught me to keep a practice log from day one. It's very important. A practice log obviously shows you how much time you invest, you know, um, every single day. And as you know, there are things like the 10,000 hour rule, which, you know, is your foot in the door, you know, to uh, to a professional level of playing. But it doesn't mean that, you know, that's the end of it. The beauty of music and, and, and learning an instrument is that it always goes on. It, there's no finish line, you know. Uh, in regards to getting better or improving your skill. But 10,000 hours, yes, you know, that'll take you up to a level of sort of professionalism, quote unquote, in any area of expertise. And uh, that means that you have to put in the time every single day. And I did actually um, log everything from the from day one in my practice log after my first drum lesson i started practicing and from that moment on i kept the practice log from literally day one when i was five years old and i still do today you know i have digital versions of it now on my phone and it's kind of utility apps and that kind of thing daily routines and what have you but that's very important to me uh, to know exactly um how much time i'm putting in and what the results are uh, you know, this is important for motivation for me. It's important for consistency. Mm. Uh, it's it helps me time manage, yeah. and so on. So that was a very important thing I learned from him: keeping a logbook and all the things I wrote down in the logbook, like how long do I practice every day, at what tempo do I practice certain exercises every day, mm. um, at what time of the day do I practice, because. That's important for productivity. You know, sometimes you practice early in the day, you see better results as on other days when you practice later in the day. So that helps you tweak your practice schedule to always be more efficient, you know, maybe absorb new information better in the morning than in the afternoon or whatever it is. And then also write down um, why you're practicing certain things that helps you stay on track and and, uh, keep a good sort of handle on on you know where you're going stylistically and musically if this is still what you set out to go for when you first started you know approaching that goal uh, and i wrote down comments every day in my logbook positive and negative comments about my practice session uh, what was good today you know did it feel good did i feel you know uh, strong uh, or did 70 BPM feel like 100 BPM, you know, all these kind of things, positive and negative comments that again helps you with productivity, figuring out maybe if you should practice at a different time of day or if you should slow down exercises in the beginning of a session or towards the end of the session or whatever it is. So all these things help you tweak and refine your, your daily practice um, uh, session to a point where you can be very, very productive and efficient. And um, yeah, that helped. All these things I learned in the first few weeks. I also learned um, to stick to practice rules. That's very important. There practice are very rules. Say more about practice rules. Rules, you know, rule number one, never play when you practice. Rule number two, never practice when you play. Mm. Rule number three, practice every day. 
Rule number four, practice like you play. And so on. I mean, to get into these, like rule number one, never play when you practice means that playing and practicing are two different mindsets. Playing is creative. You're, you're exploring, you're improvising, you're interacting with other musicians. It's a conversation. You're listening more to other people than to yourself when you're playing. You're part of a team. You, you kind of uh, inject yourself into a, a whole structure you know, of, of a band with other musicians, you're not the most important thing, you know, and playing is, is very creative and, and non repetitive often. And like I said, you improvise, you have a conversation. Practicing is the opposite, super methodical. It's totally boring. It's very frustrating. It's super repetitive, you know, and it's ultra analytical and you're always listening to yourself. You know, it's a very different mindset. And when you're practicing at home, and you are practicing something and you're in that sort of state of mind of being analytical and repetitive and methodical. And you, of course, are frustrated all the time because that's what practicing is. Right. Practicing is never, you know, you never have those big enthusiastic outbursts like, yeah, you know, this is so amazing. Right. You know, it's, it's very a slow process of chewing through exercises, you know, for weeks and months and years at a time. Um, and, and eventually you'll master something, but there is no great euphoria or anything, you know, as a result, you're just like, okay, well that took me a while, but you know, it's important to stay in that frame of mind, to be repetitive, to be methodical. And if you interrupt that state of mind with playing, because you feel so frustrated that you feel the need to kind of reward yourself. Yeah. Um, by playing something you've already practiced to make yourself feel good and stroke your ego a little bit, that's super disruptive to to methodical practice for me yeah. at least. And I know that you know the same goes for many of my colleagues who have discussed this with. It's important to stay in that frame of mind to just keep chewing, you know, through this thing, you know, little by little, step by step. No matter how frustrating it is, it's just about putting in the time and staying focused and being concentrated and doing one thing at a time and and not noodling, you know, and, and mentally kind of sort of veering off and doing something completely different simply to reward yourself and, and, and have moments of, um, you know, confidence in yourself, you know, boost your ego a little bit by playing something you've already practiced and then going back to, you know, chewing on that sandwich yeah. you know what i mean so really really about pushing through it more uh, from a mental emotional point yeah. of view yeah. oh absolutely it's all about focus it's all about focus no matter how boring it may seem and how frustrating it may be hmm. it's really important to stay with the issues always and uh, that really helped me it's helped me save a lot of time because what happens really most people who are decent practicers okay maybe they have um a let's say if they're good practices they have a 50 50 um split of practicing and noodling every single day you know they practice for three minutes and then they get frustrated and you know they need to kind of snap out of it a little bit and then play for a few minutes and they go oh i should be practicing this and they go back and go you know back and forth between practicing methodically and playing and somewhat rewarding themselves 
if you have you know a one hour practice session per day 30 minutes are spent noodling that means you know 50% of your practice time are wasted on playing I always believe that playing should have its own place. You should dedicate time to playing, not to practicing. It's a separate thing. When I'm practicing, I just practice. I focus on the one thing. And the thing is, if you're a good practicer like this, which most people are not, you know, and with most people, it's like a 70-30 split of 70% noodling and 30% practicing. <clears throat> if you're a good practicer and you practice 50-50, or you know, practice 50% play, 50% of your time invested every day. Um, if you're on your path from A to B to become a better drummer, um, and you look at the 10,000 hour rule, for example, yeah. if you break it down 10,000 hours, that's like three hours and 40 minutes or something per day for seven years every day. Okay? Yeah. So if you look at the 50-50 split between playing something you've already practiced and practice some, practicing something new every single day. You make the decision every day whether it's going to take you seven years to get to 10,000 hours or 14 years to get to 10,000 hours, which is a big difference. Right. You know, if you sit out to reach a goal, you know, you're from A to B yeah. and you look at B, B can be, you know, seven years away or you decide if it's 14 years away. Every single day, Amazing. you know, and if you look at it like that, at, at efficiency and productivity, yeah. I think it helps a lot of musicians go, hmm, yeah, you know what? Maybe I should just practice these scales right now or just practice these whatever beats right now and not anything else. I want to learn something new. Hmm. I have an hour or two or three hours a day. Why don't I just learn something new all the time? And then I, I, you know, dedicate time to playing and applying all these new things and having fun with other musicians and so on and being interactive and being creative. But for practicing, you know, I'll stay, I'll stay with the issue and I just work on things that I need to work on, on weaknesses, not enforcing strengths, meaning playing things that you've already practiced to make yourself feel good, but to really work, you know, shine a light on the dark areas of your playing every single day and, and tweak all those little mistakes and improve uh, as much as you can every day. Learn something new every day. It's fantastic. And, uh, yeah. yeah, that made a big difference. Yeah, I can hear it. Uh, I love the rules of practice. When you were studying with your teacher, Thomas, as well as you, you also went to uh, the Vienna Conservatory of Music, what was the dream that was starting to develop for you and your goals? What kind of player did you want to become? Yeah. Well, I wanted to be you know, an all-around player. I wanted to feel comfortable in all styles of music. I wanted to feel comfortable uh, reading and playing different styles idiomatically correct and authentically. And I wanted to have no technical limitations. Uh, so I could play whichever style I choose to play. And I wanted to be an eclectic player. You know, I, I didn't want to be a specific, like, you know, jazz drummer or a rock drummer of whatever. I wanted to be a little bit of everything. You know, I wanted to be a drummer, you know, any style. And of course, I have, I have, uh, you know, taste and, and style preferences sure. uh, simply uh, because that's, you know, personal taste. Sure. But I wanted to be able to play everything, yeah. you know, uh, if, if it were required in any professional working situation. And I wanted to have total control of the instrument. I wanted to have, I wanted to be comfortable. 
always when I play. And um, and I worked a lot on technique and coordination and depends and all those things because those are usually the things that make you a little uncomfortable when you play. And uh, I worked a lot on, on styles. You know, I studied jazz and I played a lot of big band, a lot of, you know, combos and trios and a lot of acoustic jazz, bebop and, and all that uh, growing up. And, uh, and I did a lot of jazz, a lot of jazz on records, played with a lot of, you know, different jazz bands and fusion bands. And my kind of my root really is jazz. You know, I know it sounds surprising, yeah. but, um, you know, I loved all the great jazz drummers and I was super inspired by, you know, everybody from, you know, Max Roach, for example, or, you know, uh, Tony Williams and Elvin Jones and uh, all these great drummers, Buddy, of course. And um, and then have you know, this, the, the deeper I sort of dove into jazz and, and techniques and independence, uh, the more I w became interested in modern applications of that. And, uh, and I think I'm, you know, that's the path I've been on, you know, since my like mid teens or so, just trying to find new applications and, and ways to play and apply traditional techniques or maybe come up with new techniques to to be a little more inventive and, and explore and push the boundaries a little bit and and try to modernize playing also a little bit you know uh, I think there is still a lot to be explored and and uh, a lot of um, techniques to be applied in in styles that that don't yet benefit from the application of those techniques I think in jazz and 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 and, and, and fusion, there's a lot more room for creative applications of modern playing techniques, especially in regards to foot technique and stuff like that. Yeah. So, and yeah, that's really finding your voice on the instrument as well, right? Of course. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and I mean, that's that's basically what I described just now. My voice obviously, you know, your personal personality is always very much reflected in your playing. And mine is a combination of of cerebral, you know, very emotional and also very intellectual sort of components. I just the one or the other doesn't quite do it for me. I want that yin and yang balance somehow. Um, and uh, you know, that's the kind of player I think I am still today. It's a bit of both. You know, it's a bit of brainy and a bit of brawny. Sure. sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And when was it? When was it, Thomas, that you decided? that you wanted to be a professional musician, professional drummer. Was it four years old hugging the bass drum or when you went to the conservatory? When was yeah. That? I mean, I, as soon as I realized that being a musician is actually a, a, a valid, you know, option, yeah. you know, for a profession, I, I went for it. I was probably in my early teens, 12, 13 years old or so when I realized this is actually a, you know, a possibility. And then I just went for it. And I actually started uh, studying very early. I had some great teachers, like I said earlier, uh, until my like early mid teens and then went to the conservatory very early. Um, what was that experience like? It was great. You know, it was great to be with a lot of like-minded people and, uh, everybody, you know, in the learning mode and super passionate for music and interested in collaborating and jamming and playing and forming bands. And it was, you know, a great, very fun 
time with a lot of exchanges with different musicians, a lot of different styles of music, and a very steep learning curve because teachers were great, but it was also a very strict school. So you had to get stuff done or you were out, you know. So um, you had to stay on top of things all the time. Lots of uh, repertoire learning, lots of reading, um, lots of practicing, lots of technique. Um, but great fun because, you know, we would together get together all the other drummers who were studying there and just work on chops and work on rudiments and charts and uh, it was great and so when you you're 16 or you graduate from the conservatory and you get that first professional gig and you're saying to mom and dad i want to go pro i mean they were very supportive right from the beginning were they on board with that as well or were they like well you might want to have a backup as an accountant thomas uh (laughs) Uh, well my, my mother was super supportive always and she totally believed in me and and wanted to make sure that i uh find uh something that makes me happy, you know, and, and find a profession that is fulfilling and that I feel passionate for. She was super supportive from the beginning. My father, not so much. He actually didn't like the whole, you know, thing. Um, and, uh, was not supportive. You know, he was hoping I was going to do something completely different, something a little more traditional. And, um, but as soon, you know, as I finished school, I went on the road, you know, and, um, and made money, you know, so I was very lucky to end up with some very successful bands very early on and artists that I worked with who happened to be friends of mine. And, um, and I think when, when my parents saw that, well, there it's obviously working, he's making money more than his other, you know, brothers and sisters or friends, uh, and he's happy. So that kind of worked out, you know, no doubt. Right. It clearly worked out. What were some of those early first gigs that you got that were paying some bills? Well, in the very beginning, I was again, you know, still based in Vienna, working with Austrian pop artists, you know, and some of them very successful in that small country of Austria. Um, artists you wouldn't know, like Eta Scolo. She was an Italian artist. One of my first professional tours was with her. Um, she's from Sicily, Italy, but she happened to live in uh, in Vienna at the time and had a number one hit. And we had a, a national tour, which was a great thing for me. I was very young. I was probably 17 or 18 or something like that. And and that got opened the doors for me uh, in regards to gigs with other Austrian national artists, all the other people who had number one hits and were always in the charts. And I started doing a lot of like Austro pop gigs at the time. And of course the biggest Austro popper at the time was Falco. And I ended up playing with him. Um, and basically as soon as I left school and, and, and the conservatory, I was on a world tour with him. You know, he had huge uh, hits that was back in the 80s. Right. The Rock Me Amadeus, uh, right? Exactly. Yeah. Rock Me Amadeus and the Commissar and many, many others. And uh, number one hits here in the U.S. And, and mega worldwide hits. So I just happened to end up in the right place at the right time. And uh, all of his you know, band members were good friends of mine who I worked with with many other bands in Austria. So we were all friends. And um, and that was my first really big international gig. Yeah. You know, all the other stuff I'd done before was more national or more sort of in the German-speaking territories like Austria, Switzerland, uh, Germany. 
And um, and that gig with Falco was a really international gig. Yeah. And um, and you got to tour with him. Where you, did you also get to record some of those songs with him? Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, we were doing both touring and recording. And I was also involved in writing with him, and and also co-produced and produced his records. So. Fantastic. Oh. That, uh, again, was a very important learning experience, and uh, that's kind of what kicked off my uh, sort of career, a side career, if you like, as a writer and producer, okay. uh, which I've been doing since then, you know. That's fantastic. What was the main difference that you learned, because you on-the-job training, obviously, between playing live and recording in the studio? Um. Well, the main differences are, uh, you know, in this, you have a different mindset in both situations, very different. Uh, in the studio, you know, you're, you're doing something that, that will be listened to over and over and over again. It's not just a moment in time. You're, you're archiving something. It's, it's a document. You're capturing something that will live forever in a way and especially back in those days when i first had my first the studio sessions there were no you know there was no pro tools or anything or no not much you know punching in if you messed up something yeah you'd punch in but you were always doing whole takes and everything and in the studio would really go after you know the energy of a song the feel of it and and not be too um not have an ego at all especially in, in like the pop music, uh, pop and rock music context, you would just play parts and execute them really well and be very methodical, really, and, and very clean and and just work on feel and, and sound. And alive, it's completely different. You can just go nuts sometimes. You know, if you feel like there's a moment where another musician needs to be confused a little bit, you can confuse him. If there's a moment where he needs a little bit more support and something, you know, because he's in the middle of a solo and, and he's like getting a little lost there, you're going to nail that one really, really hard so he knows where everybody is. Those guys, it's more, a lot more interactive. And you can also, you have, of course, more freedom to play the song a little bit different every night, explore new options, change things slightly, um, and, and add a little bit of flavor and spice to each performance that um, surprises maybe the other musicians a little bit or just changes the feel slightly. Uh, no, it's, it's, you're more flexible live, you know, and, and it's a little bit more creative and definitely more interactive. With the audience, you react to what the real audience is doing and you react to what the rest of the band is doing. And uh, you can also cause, you know, reactions. You can do something that'll inspire somebody else to play something slightly differently that day or a certain reaction from the audience and, and so on. So very, you know, quite different yeah, mindsets. Question. Performing live ever have any nerves or, you know, any challenges around that before going live or no? No, not really. Um, I was always really excited to play and looking forward to playing. I never had that you know, kind of nervous anticipation before a show. Yeah. I was um, probably also a result of my, my first teacher and my first few recitals where he's, you know told me, like, you like playing the drums? I'm like, yeah. Well, 
you're going to be playing the drums in five minutes. It's going to be fun. And don't forget, you're playing. It's like Lego, only with drums. You're just having fun. Don't freak out, you know. And he just took that fear away. And um, and I still feel the same way, you know. If something goes wrong, who cares? It's just music. Nobody's going to get hurt, you know. And um, and most of the things that go wrong are so minor that nobody really notices. And it's 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 really just a psychological thing and a mental thing. If you don't freak out over it, not you know nobody's going to freak out. And if you don't make a big deal out of it, then it becomes a total non-event if something goes wrong. So you know, it's I I still approach it with in the same sort of playful manner that I did then when I was a kid. And I think for me, that's at least the right approach. You know, it is called playing music. Exactly. You know. And and, um, and and you get to hit things when it's the drums. And you right? get to hit things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of your other career highlights so far, because you're a young guy still, Thomas, and you got way more to go. Working with Stork, Paul Gilbert, Bonnie Tyler, Peter Gabriel, Glenn Hughes of Deep Purple. I mean, these are other amazing artists. Can you say a little bit about what you remember of working with them? Uh, of course. Um Everybody's different. Everybody's exciting. Um, uh, nothing but fond memories of all these things. Uh, you know, when I, I used to live in London for many years, just, you know, in the very beginning when I started working with Falco and we started touring internationally and moved to London and I did a lot of pop gigs in London for many years. I lived there for 15 years. And I did a lot of really kind of bubblegum kind of pop shows because they were so much fun to do and they were huge at the time, you know, late 80s all through the 90s. Um, and early 2000s, um, that was a really big scene, and still is in England, especially with the Spice Girls and Robbie Williams, and you know, with Kylie Minogue and George Michael, and all those great bands, and that I had you know a chance of working with, and great artists, and Bonnie, and and also more progressive stuff. I, I worked with John Wetton and Asia for many years. Uh, that was one of my first uh, gigs, actually in in England, uh, playing with John and, uh, um, I did some records also with Glenn at the time, Glenn Hughes and John Wetton and Glenn and Billy Lee's gang, who was, um, the guitar player in Asia and then John and John Wetton's band at the time. Anyways, a lot of that scene I did in the first few years with Steve Hackett, um, and playing all these great songs that I always loved, all the old Genesis stuff and, and King Crimson songs and uh, UK and so on, yeah. which is uh, funny because I'm doing some shows with Eddie Jobson in October. Really? Um, so, yeah. again, it's, we've come full circle. Sure. But that was a really important and fun time for me. Um, and it was a lot of progressive stuff and very pop stuff. And um, and it was a nice balance for me. And plenty of sessions also back then in London. Um, and that was for me, I think, a very important time because I was touring nonstop. Like it was like one tour after another, and uh, in albums in between. Um, and I think. You know, I did that for 15 or more years because before that, you know, I was also doing Falco and, and a lot of other tours. And I was a real sort of touring musician for a long time. Yeah. I mean, sometimes like 18 months on the road wow. and, you know, really long tours yeah. everywhere. And when that 
at one point I got tired of that, you know, and that coincided with me moving here to the U.S. and, you know, having children and getting married and everything. That's when I started changing a lot of the things, you know, in my career. Uh, so I have more control and I can write my own, you know, diaries and uh, make my own plans. Um, but that was a very important time. And, uh, you know, I, I went really hard for many years um, and yeah. looking back is it was a very important time, but I'm also glad that's over. <laughs> yeah. There's a wear and tear that I've talked with other musicians about that touring can be great fun, but it's also a, a very difficult lifestyle, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's hard to combine that with family life or, you know, your own personal projects or other work that I do as a producer or writer or educator, sure. you know, you have to, you know, have time for all these other things and being on the road, as you well know, is 90% of waiting to play and maybe 10% of playing. And that's just not a very efficient, uh, split and, and investment of your time, you know, and there's really no time to practice anywhere. And, right. You know, once you've been everywhere 50 times, uh, it's also no longer interesting to go sightseeing or try to find that new cool restaurant in Tokyo. You know, you've already been there 30 times. Right. All you want to do is stay in and do your email and right. that's it. You know? And then get home, right? So and then get home, exactly. So you're living in California now. you got a family. And, I mean, clearly with with your the the rules of practice and what you've learned – you know, you're an amazing teacher as well. I've got this, um, the, your creative control, and we'll put a graphic okay. up as well. Um, I haven't gone through the whole thing, but it's incredible. You've got drum books, drum DVDs, the Drum Universe School. Talk about some of these projects that you're doing as a teacher now. Okay. Well, I started um, teaching in the early 90s. I recorded a the first ever german language instructional drum video series and um because at the time there were only english language videos available you know and translated videos often they weren't even translated if they were translated they were very badly translated so a lot of my peers at the time you know asked me if i would give lessons and i didn't have time to give lessons because i was touring so much but i decided to do a video and um and just share some of my ideas and approaches and things I learned from my teachers uh, on video in German. And that was a very successful video. And uh, simply because that was the first German language yeah. <laughs> drum available. That's great. And, um, and that was my first sort of experience with teaching, really. Um, along with the video, there was a book also of transcriptions of all the exercises. And then a few years, and then I kind of stayed away from the whole teaching thing because I was so busy playing again for years until maybe the early 2000s. And I never did any clinics or anything like that before. Uh, I only started doing clinics uh, pretty late in my career, actually, around 2000. 2000, I think, was the first time I did a drum clinic because a friend of mine uh, has a drum store in Austria, and, and it was their 30th anniversary or something, and... Uh, 
uh, he asked me to come and play. And it also coincided with me switching endorsements. And, and um, Meinl, my new cymbal company at the time, asked me to promote my signature cymbals. And at the same time, my drum company at the time asked me to promote some of the pedals I helped uh, design. And it all came together. And so I said, okay, I'll do this uh, drum festival in, in Austria for my friend. And that festival featured many other artists like Dave Weckl and Virgil and a bunch of other guys who were there. And it got, I got a lot of press as a result. And somebody filmed it and showed it to some other festival promoters. And suddenly I got a lot of requests to do clinics. And a couple of years later, and I avoided those. It was a bit of an uncomfortable thing to do for me okay um and but a couple of years later uh, no maybe probably only about a year later or so um i was asked to do some international drum festivals and i happened to be on tour in canada with one of the artists i was playing with and there was a montreal drum fest Mm. um and then just after that was like a pacing or something And my drum company asked me if I would, you know, do those two things, you know, after my tour in Canada and said, sure, you know, I'm already there. So may as well. And those got a lot of coverage and press. And then Modern Drummer asked me to come and play at their festival. Mm -hmm. And I got even more coverage and press. And and um, and that and then as a result of that, Hudson Music asked me to do a DVD, which is the one that you just were just holding up. And I kind of stumbled into the whole teaching thing that way. You know, it, it was a very sporadic adventure in the beginning. And then in order to promote the DVD, I saw that this has a lot of potential, not only uh, would it allow me to be more flexible and create my own schedules and not depend so much on other people's uh, touring schedules and diaries and so on? Um, but it was it also became somewhat of a viable business option as a side business, you know. So it it was the best of both worlds: more flexibility and um, and uh, a lot of business potential. So I decided to really focus on that for a while. And I did the DVD and the book with it. And then in order to promote the DVD, I did a huge clinic tour in 2004, I think it was, or 2003, whenever that DVD came out. And I did like 220 clinics all over the world to promote the DVD and the symbols and the pedals and all that. And um, that was a very important experience. And then, you know, that was that was when I started becoming more of an educator, really, and just learning from the questions uh, and being, you know, very interactive with with you know uh, the audience at the clinics and and students whenever I met, met them, helped me kind of refine my concepts a little bit. And then I did another another DVD and book um, a couple of years later with Hudson Music. And then I kind of found myself and I was able to kind of vocalize or, or express my concepts and what I learned and what worked for me early on in my career much better. And again, streamlined uh, my sort of teaching approach a little bit. And, and that became more methodical. And not long after that, I started my camps. Because again, that gave me even more flexibility, and yeah. and I I was the first sort of uh, drummer who started doing completely independent, like guerrilla style, artist hosted camps. 
in 2005 or six that was i started the thomas lang drumming boot camp that year it didn't have a name yet but uh, a couple of years later i i created the website and what have you and called it the thomas lang drumming boot camp but it started when myspace started okay. and uh and again by teaching at the camps um i just learned so much about what the right approach is maybe to teaching what i wanted to teach and what not and uh, how i would like to teach and uh, and uh, you know which things i would be sharing and what kind of worked for me and so on so you that see, was my yeah kind of path into teaching yeah. yeah you seem like a natural at teaching and you've been schooled so much was it was that the initial discomfort was not sure how to translate that to others or what was that uh, initial uncomfort? Well, initial comfort, uh, discomfort was simply not knowing what other people's goals and interests were. You know, I, I was always focusing on mine very much and I wasn't simply wasn't sure if, if my interests and goals reflect uh, other people's interests and goals and if they would be sort of if I could generalize them enough to make them appealing to everybody else I had very specific goals you know sure <laughs> but I found out that you know my goals are pretty much every everybody else's goals too <laughs> exactly yeah so give us a glimpse of someone coming to that gorilla drum camp the Thomas Lang drum camp what are what to expect and what are they going to get out of that well <laughs> it's to give you a little bit of a history, it started literally like guerrilla style with uh, sort of the um, early days, uh, in the early days of social media with MySpace, when people figured out where I was on the road, I would post like something from Stockholm, I'm in Stockholm today, whatever, and people say, hey, I'm in Stockholm too, I'm a drummer, can I take a lesson with you, in the, you know, before the show, whatever. And always being a fan of productivity, I said, of course, yeah, let's do something, I'm just sitting around my hotel, I've got a day off, or whatever, let's do it. So either I would teach private lessons like in dressing rooms or backstage somewhere, or uh, I would actually rent a, a meeting room in a hotel that I was staying at and say, hey, I've got a couple of friends coming over. Can I have this room for three hours? I've got a couple of pads and so on. And um, so, you know, after a few weeks of that, I got more and more um, students and, and drummers contact me wherever I was. And it kind of grew into a little bit of a thing, you know, over a couple of months. And after about a year, you know, somebody would say, hey, can I take a lesson with you in wherever, Moscow today? But I've also got three other buddies. Uh, can they come too? And, of course, it naturally grew very organically up to a point where suddenly there were 15 people. And it was a total chaos. And it was like, did you email me? No, but I heard and this friend told me about it. And it's like, okay, it was total chaos. So I decided to make a website for it and, nice. wow. and give it a name yeah. and give people the chance to sign up for it in advance. When I got my schedules, my touring schedules, and I knew I had three days off in Paris or whatever, I would host a camp in Paris and so on. And it was a great way for me to sort of fill my gaps in my touring schedule and be more productive. And um, and share and just be a drum nerd, you know, as a nice balance to being super focused and disciplined, you know, with some of the or all of the bands I was working with. So um, and that's how it grew. And what to expect is usually my camps are sort of weekend um, experiences. It's usually a Friday, Saturday, Sunday weekend experience. It's a three day camp. Um, 
And I was the first uh, who made sure that every student has their own practice kit. So uh, because before that, camps weren't that interactive. Maybe students had that pad and that was it. But and I really wanted everybody to have a full practice kit with pedals and throne and four playing surfaces so we can actually work on all the motions and mechanics and foot technique and everything else, too. So everybody gets a kit. Everybody has a kit. Like Oprah, everybody gets a kit, right? Everybody gets, exactly. Look under your seat. (laughs) Exactly. And um, so everybody always has a practice kit, and it's totally interactive. We play eight hours every day, four hours in the morning, four hours in the afternoon, and we actually play. Uh, I work, I demonstrate all the exercises. I create a curriculum specifically for each camp, at each camp. Um, so I react to what the students' interests, wishes, and weaknesses are. At the beginning of the camp, we, we talk about what everybody wants to work on, wants to learn at the camp, wants to improve in their playing. I create a curriculum out of those things. And, um, and then we work at it. Everybody, everything gets covered. And if I see that, you know, there are certain things that people neglect or, um, ignore then i work those into the curriculum as well and um and it's very intense i demonstrate things and the people the students play with me uh and it's imagine like you know jane fonda aerobic workout videos only with drums <laughs> there's a lot of sweating and there's some cursing going on and right. and it's um it's a great group dynamic you know it gets very intense at times and um and um, so four hours morning, four hours in the afternoon. That means over three days, there's 24 hours of actual playing, which in itself is already a guarantee for your improvement. Right. Because most people have never played 24 hours over three days or practiced that much over three days. So that alone, you know, is will deliver results. Yeah. Plus all the stuff that, you know, the people are taking home, all the questions that other people, you know, get answered yeah. uh, in the camp. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's a very intense and uh, fun learning environment. I, I always folk, uh, have small groups of maybe 15 to 20 people because I like to know everybody's name and, and work with everybody individually and be able to correct, every, you know, individuals' uh, like mistakes and walk through the room and and, and have it be very intimate and productive. And if you have a group that's too big, that doesn't work so well anymore. Right. So if I sometimes for camps have more interest to sign ups than, than 20, then I will, you know, if I have 30 or more people coming, then I would do two camps uh, in a row rather than have one large group. So I like to keep it small and streamlined and very effective and guerrilla style still to this day and very intense. And when's your next one coming up and where is it? Well, the next one is in Stockholm, actually, um, with Drumbeat Workshop, um, a, a Swedish drum school in Stockholm. Then I'm doing one in Kenton in Germany. After The week after that, those are both in October, mid-October. Okay. And then I have the boot camp here in Los Angeles, November 9th to the 11th. Always here in the same location in, in Thousand Oaks, Los Angeles, at a beautiful hotel called the Palm Garden Hotel. And um, if you're interested, go to thomaslangdrummingbootcamp.com or go to muso-mart, 
Com. That's um, our uh, event organization company and marketing company. And you can sign up for the camp there online. That's all the information for it. And it's a beautiful hotel. And there's a pool and there's an Irish bar and there's Wi-Fi and free breakfast and uh, lots of drums. So. Drumming with Thomas Lang. That's pretty cool. Exactly. Now, if somebody can't get to the drumming workshop, they can still study with you because you've created this online drum universe school. Tell me about this, please. This is very exciting. Yes. Um, I have an online school called Thomas Lang's Drum Universe. And um, again, one of those things, a lot of times people approach me and they don't have the uh, ability to travel to attend any of the, these camps. So, And I still get a lot of questions and um, interaction with some of my fans and friends online and especially through social media. And there's just so much interest out there that I thought it would be nice to share uh, also on my, in my own uh, drum school. And I started that. I, I had a school years ago that was hosted with another company in, in, in Napa that did that for a couple of years. But then that didn't work out, and I decided to just do my own thing. And uh, I started the Thomas Lang's Drum Universe about two years ago. And uh, I recorded a massive sort of core curriculum of all the stuff that, you know, we're usually uh, discussing in the camps also, things that I know that people are interested in, and sort of newer versions of a lot of my DVD concepts and exercises, and, uh, and a lot of new stuff. And I um, have, uh, it's not just pure drum lessons, it's a huge amount of actual just pure technique lessons, you know, hand technique, foot technique, coordination exercises, you know, linear exercises, non-linear, polyrhythms, beat displacement, just groove playing, all sorts of stuff, tons and tons of applied rudiments and rudiments for the feet and speed exercises, whatever, lots and lots. I mean, I think it's about 40 hours of of just drumming exercises. But then there's also transcriptions, of course, of the exercises, and also other things like there's a section called opinions and conversations where, you know, I'm just talking or sharing some of my thoughts about drumming or music or touring, or there are, you know, tour blogs um, where, you know, people can, you know, be on the road with me and see what I see. And I film tours and upload them on the site. And then there are uh, reaction videos to questions that some of my students have and specific questions they have. And um, so lots of different stuff. There's play along tracks on the site. And then there's song performances. And then there are solos and backstage clips and all sorts of stuff. So it's it's kind of an all around yeah. A glimpse into my world of you know playing and working and drumming and practicing and my my concepts right. all wrapped into one shiny little drum school. Right. It's the full boat. And where can people go see that, Thomas? Enjoy. They can go. Yeah the the URL is Thomas Lang's Drum Universe dot com, and uh, you can also go to Muso hyphen Mart. And uh, click the link to the drum school there. There's discounts if you if you uh, go through Newsmart, and uh, and that's it. Yeah, that's great. Now you just got back from China too. I don't know if yes. that was teaching or performing or both. Probably. What was that? It like? was it was both. Yes, uh, I did a long uh, tour 
um, of solo shows, solo concerts. It's not so much a clinic. Uh, I do a lot of solo concerts, solo performances in China. There's really no sort of teaching element. It's it's just a performance. Uh, China has a huge history of of drumming and uh, tom toms are from China. Gongs are from China. Chinese symbols, Chinas are from China. I so, right? <laughs> you know, and there's a huge history in drumming, and and they very much appreciate sort of contemporary yeah. percussive art. Yeah. And um, so I do a lot of solo performances there, and they're very large shows. Um, you can see some of the tour blocks from my earlier tours in China on YouTube, on my YouTube channel, which is Stick Tricks. That's my YouTube channel. And um, and it's a really wonderful experience. I did about, I did eight weeks now. So, oh, wow. and I think 20, no more. I was in 36 cities. Amazing. Um, and sometimes multiple shows, uh, very large shows. Um, always, you know, I think the smallest show was about 1,500 or 2,000 people. That's incredible. Uh, and and much bigger than that even. So they're, they're very big shows and um, yeah. it's, a, it's a wonderful audience in China. So I did that for two months and then I went back. I came back here for some session work and then I went back for another three of yeah three and four weeks actually to do camps in china that was the first time i now hosted my drumming boot camps in several cities in china so also a very interesting experience the first time that i had to have a translator there with me sure sure and um which um was a learning experience for me too because you know it's very direct when you teach in english or yeah. or german sure. but if you have to go through a translator um you have to streamline your concepts and everything you say even more which was a very valuable um teaching experience yeah. amazing and um yeah so i hosted uh, three camps just now uh, i got just got back last week in shanghai hangzhou and in tianjin uh, with very, very good students. Incredible. And, and the drumming scene in China altogether is just unbelievable. I mean, there are so many ultra-enthusiastic young players who are super focused. And, um, you know, there's a lot of drum schools in China, a lot of, you know, universities who are starting jazz programs and contemporary music programs. Uh, it's a very exciting uh, place for music right now. It's incredible because I know you and Dom Famularo are going out there and, and teaching a lot of folks, you know, mm -hmm. and I imagine you'll be back, right? You're, you're going to be going back to China at some point. Yeah, I go, I've been going there since I think the first time I went was 89. Wow. Okay. So it's been a long time and I go back there every year, sometimes multiple times a year. And, uh, not only for sessions, recording sessions with people or solo drum performances or concerts, you know, when I'm touring with bands, of course, we also play China when we're doing Asia, but I also do a lot of educational stuff there and um and it's it's growing and growing it's a really interesting scene you know the th one of the things i'm struck by by just hearing part of your story thomas is you are quite a music entrepreneur and because the music business has changed so much you are performing you are teaching you've got dvds books products you're teaching online the the boot camps can you say a little bit more to a, a musician who uh, is looking to do more of their music business and what you've learned around that, what advice you would give? Oh, yes. Um, well, 
it is true the music scene has changed drastically um and you know whether you think it's a good or bad thing you know i have really no opinions about that it's just different than it used to be um and i experienced both you know i experienced the the times where record labels you know pretty much dictated everything and um it was uh, it worked that way you know there were budgets and people were buying hard copies of records so there was a lot more control over money there was a lot more publishing money and royalties and so on um i'm not a fan of how these things are now with streaming services and uh, people quote unquote sharing music which means stealing and damaging um you know publishing rights and royalties and so on that's a terrible thing um and i i hate the fact that this is happening really only in music and not in literature uh, or the movie industry where there are much harsher penalties and and punishments for people who steal intellectual property and uh, and bootleg things and rip off things so um it's a shame that it it that you know lawmakers allowed this happen to happen to the music scene and that especially in the US there isn't more control and harsher punishments and it should be you know it's not fair anyways i remember the days when all that was more controlled and it worked that way it was fine but now you know there are also other ways that you can monetize music um whether it's with you know google ads on your youtube channel or there are new ways to make money and monetize sort of your talents and and playing skill whether it's again you know youtube or social media sharing things it's much cheaper to produce records now uh, technology has evolved so far and so much that we can make a record on our laptop at home and we don't have to hire these multi-million dollar studios and you know it's much easier you don't need to replicate you can just release a digital product you don't really need hard copies or print something or you need a truck to drive stacks of cds of vinyl around and store them in a warehouse that has an electrical bill and whatever you know all these things have changed and there are interesting ways and to answer your question sorry it took so long it's okay um my recommendation to anybody today out there is um wear many hats you know the music if you are a musician today you're a lot more than just you know an active player you know somewhere whether it's in the studio or on a stage I think you you have to wear many hats today if you want to be a successful musician. You have to not only be the best player you can possibly be, which is of course the the, the biggest um, challenge. You know that takes years and decades. You know to to reach that level of of skill and command over your instrument. You have to be an incredible player first of all, um, but. In order to collaborate with people and maybe get a slightly bigger piece of the pie, you know, financially or get involved with publishing and royalties, you also want to be a writer and a co-writer. So learning another instrument is always a good idea. You want to learn how to use software, you know, how to use compositions and sequencing software, whether it's Ableton or Logic or, you know, Pro Tools or whatever software. You've got to be comfortable using 
software, music software. You need to know about electronic equipment. You know, you have to have some electronic drums. I mean, there's hardly anything in the world of recording today that happens without, you know, some sort of electronic component. Um, you have to arrange music. You have to learn to, you know, you've got to be able to read music, you know. Um, if you want to get involved with writing songs or lyrics or arranging or being a musical director for the band that you're uh, working with, if you have all those skills, you can do that. Um, but you also need to be a promoter. You know, you need to be a, a relentless self-promoter, you, you know, using social media to spread the word a little bit, you know, whether it's YouTube or Instagram or Twitter, whatever it is, to put yourself out there, promote your own playing and who you are and what you do and of course any products if you have any promote your own music you also have to be you know skilled in web design you know because maybe you can't afford to pay somebody else to make that website you want so it's pretty cheap to get an adobe subscription or something and just learn it and do it you know and um and you have to wear all these hats you know and and what used to be maybe one big chunk of money that came from you know, ASCAP or uh, BMI, whatever, once a year, you know, a couple of 20 years ago is now sort of a, 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 a river of nickels that trickles in from many areas. You get a little bit of publishing money and you get some airplay money and you get, you know, some royalties and then you get some concert, you know, fees and you get some, you know, publishing money from maybe signature products or from, you know, get some money from teaching and camps and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, it comes from many different areas these days. And, um, it's, it's, it hasn't changed much in terms of the amounts if you do it right. Uh, and if you are smart about it, you can actually make a lot more money these days because you have much lower overheads and expenses, uh, thanks to technology and, the way we can promote our things today, etc. So I recommend to everybody out there, wear as many hats as you can, be a jack of all trades, and uh, uh, get involved with everything. But never forget that the most important thing and really the essence of what you should be focusing on is playing if you want to be an active musician. You know, I know a lot of musicians today who start out as players, they want to be an active musician, but they very quickly end up being the video editor or, you know, the Pro Tools guy or, you know, the, the stage manager or whatever. You know, they, they find something that works for them. And in many cases, it's not playing actively. But they're still working in the music industry and they're happy. And, uh, and that's all that matters. Yeah, that's very important and great advice. That's fantastic. I love it. A, a couple of things that I've seen you on recently, and one was, I'm so glad they did this on YouTube, and it might be other places, but Dream Theater did their auditions for a new drummer when Mike Portnoy left. Um, and then you were on Fred Armisen's uh, Stand Up for Drummers. I was curious about what experience was both of those like, especially the Dream Theater one, because we don't get to see the behind-the-scenes glimpse of auditioning for a band like that. Right. Well, it was a, a very interesting and, for me, a very positive experience. Um, it was a very unusual audition because it was so very much sort of in-depth and, and uh, you know, more complex than pretty much any other audition I've ever done before. 
and I've, I've done many other auditions, you know, which is usually you walk in, you play a couple songs. It's like, you know, this, you get judged on more, you know, personality and vibe and maybe some of the fashion aspects as well. You know what it's like in the, in the world of pop music and stuff. But this was very different. It was a very long audition and it, it consisted of sort of several parts you know, there was a long jam session. It was like an hour of just jamming and just trying to have a conversation musically with the other guys. And that was a lot of fun. And then, uh, obviously, the songs uh, that they wanted me to prepare and play, like all the other guys who auditioned as well, we all played the same few songs, some of them very long songs. So that was an, like an hour and a half just playing, you know, the, the audition songs. And, um, and then there, they had some like new ideas prepared and some riffs and charts, you know, a lot of odd time signature stuff that they wanted me. And I guess the other guys also to read and interpret like, you know, play like a, a metal version of this riff and now play like, can you do like a more like a hard rock thing, you know, version of this or do a real progressive version of that. And it was fun, you know, it's challenging of course. And there was a lot of reading involved and, and a lot of, sort of uh, you had to come up with some ideas right away and be creative and i loved all that you know it was um, it was a great experience and um, um you know it's and i wanted to know what the deal was of course you know career wise you know if you if you commit to to a band like that you really want to know uh, how much you're working how much money it is and everything else and all those details and sure. The main reason why I, I went to the audition was to kind of figure out more about the deal, you know. Yeah. And um, and uh, and the, the, on the musical side, it was just a lot of fun. You know, the guys were totally cool. And um, for me, you know, I have so many other things going at the time. Especially, it wasn't the right thing, you know. Um, and I'm glad they found Mike and uh, it worked out for them and for him. And that's super cool. And f overall, it was a great experience. I think I was in very good company with, yeah. with all of my friends, you know, being there too, like Virgil and, and, and Achilles and, and Marco and, you know, all my buddies. Uh, so yeah. that was a lot of fun. Yeah. And it seemed like the Fred Armisen show was just pure fun, right? Ah, total fun. Yeah, total fun. Yeah. Um, you know, Fred's a great drummer. You know, he's super passionate. For he is, it. isn't he? You know, yeah. He loves drums, and he used to be a, a, a drummer and playing bands, and um, and still loves drums. You know, like like me, he's been forever infected with the drum bug and the virus. So, um, I, you know, he did that spoof um, instructional drum video years ago. Do you know it? It's I called Yens. He has an alter ego, like a, a comic character called Jens Hanneman. Okay, and he plays this European, um, like complex drummer guy. Obviously, a character somewhat based on Marco Miniman and me, people like me, like non-American, like usually German-speaking drums. And he has this really strong, like German-Austrian accent in the video. And he did a whole. Uh, drum video called Jens Hanneman's Complicated Drumming Techniques. If you don't, if you've never seen it, go check it out. I will. Is that that's yeah. on YouTube? It's on YouTube, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, complicated Drumming Techniques. So it, <laughs> anyways, when he, when he first released that, that was years ago, maybe 2000, 
seven or eight or something like that, a long time ago. Yeah. He asked me if I would help him promote it. Yeah. Because if I could play a character and uh, kind of uh, talk about Jens Henneman and, and, and sort of pretend that he's a real character and he's also in the local scene and what I think about him and whatever. Anyway, so we did that then. That's great. And, uh, and when he, a couple of years ago, um, came up with the concept for this new show, uh, he just called me up and, uh, and asked if I would like to get involved and do some live shows with him here in California. And so we did a few shows. Um, and uh, there's actually more drumming in, in, in the live shows that we did that in the Netflix spe special that you may have seen. Um, there's a lot of really fun sort of goofy interaction on the drums where we were both playing in the show. And, and of course, um, there's that one thing that is now also the Netflix special where he introduces me as a world famous drummer, but then has me, you know, like play out a script with him rather than play the drums. Right. It's like a, such a, like, <laughs> Coitus interrupt us, you know, like, right, right. Look, and it's for drummers only, of course, you know, all the people with audience drummers. So they're sitting there going like, Oh, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, there's going to be some cool jamming going on. And, there's, and suddenly there's acting and not jamming. So, <laughs> so no, it's fun. The whole show is great fun. And, and it's just wonderful to see that, you know, Fred's still so passionate about music and drumming that, no, he'll do something like this. Yeah. You know, his true passion, I think. Yeah, it's fantastic and a very yeah. talented guy. Last question then, Thomas. You know, you are such an accomplished drummer, education, uh, you know, clinician, author. I have the perception, and I know it's off, but that you got it. You know, you've, you've done all of this stuff. Do you need to still practice? I don't know. But what are you still working on? What are your goals with drumming today? Um, of course, like I said earlier, it never ends. You know, if you're passionate, you know, for music or drumming, and if you're interested, then there is no finish line. And of course, I still practice. I don't have as much time as I would like to practice, but I have many goals and uh, I wish I could practice every day. It makes me happy to practice, you know, still to this day. It makes me happy to, to uh, work on weaknesses and 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 streamline things and and improve details in my playing uh a lot of the goals i have today uh for example are to um to find a way to um apply and include more complex independence in a really commercial context you know there's so much complex music out there today that's really um there's so much kind of pro progressive metal and gent and math metal out there and a lot of kind of heavy music that's that uh, despite the fact that I was one of the early, you know, people playing kind of gent and, and progressive math metal, like, you know, the Stork channel on, on, on Pandora, it's named after us where they play all the, you know, animals as leaders and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so despite of being there, in a way, in the early days of it, I kind of, I, I get bored with it now very easily. And I, I, I sort of crave really commercial songs, more hooky songs, but I also want the, a, a certain level of complexity in the drum part. So a lot of my interests and goals at the moment are playing 
grooves and beats and constructing and designing beats, if you like, that have, uh, you know, a, a really profound um, intellectual component, you know, that are tricky, that are hard to play, but sound real easy, that sound real groovy and real simple. But if you look at them under the microscope, you go, oh, ah, hmm, that's different. That's, oh, okay, that's very different. You know, I want that sort of second level of, hmm, you know, chin scratching and head scratching. Not, you know, to be complicated for complexity's sake or anything, only to kind of entertain myself and still play some catchy, hooky songs. You know, I'm a I'm a song geek. I always was. I'm a fan of of you know of commercial music. I always was. So that's one of my goals to to kind of combine complexity and simplicity in a way. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, <laughs> sounds a little abstract. I know. No, it sounds but great. The goals are to to work on everything, like on techniques. You know, to work on sounds. You know, to, to I have a really weird looking drum set that I've been playing for years with like rata toms and gong drums and, and all sorts of funky little cymbals and stuff. So I'm working on really a random sounds and random grooves and I'm trying to work in surprises into my playing more. Uh, I'm trying to think out of the box more in my playing. I'm trying to still work on match script because I played traditional for so many years, okay. like 30 odd years and then switched to matched after surgery uh, and um, my left hand, I'm still, you know, working on that. There's always, you know, room for improvement. So, yeah, never ends. Always goes on. That's really incredible. Thank you so much for making it accessible to Luddites like me. I really appreciate that. I already feel smarter. I don't know if it's going to translate on the drum set, but I really appreciate your time. And this has been like a drum lesson for me, Thomas. Thomas thank Lang, you. thank you so much for being on Musicians on the Record. Thank you, David. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Thomas Lang, for being on Musicians on the Record. What an incredible story, getting the, the drum bug at four years old after he was hearing the music and the band and basically jumping on stage, falling in love with the drums at four. That is very cool. And the career highlights with Falco, playing with Peter Gabriel and Glenn Hughes of Deep Purple, Paul Gilbert and Bonnie Tyler. Just incredible. This guy is the real deal. What an incredible musician and drummer and writing songs, producing, and his education materials. This, if you've never checked it out, please do. Creative Coordination and Advanced Foot Techniques, Thomas Lang's Drumming Boot Camp, and his Drum Universe. You can find all of that on his website, thomaslangdrummer.com. We'd love to hear from you wherever you're listening from in the world. Please let us know which musician's story you'd most love to hear. Subscribe to the audio podcast here. And if you want to watch all of these interviews, including the one with Thomas, you can do so on our YouTube page, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and our website at musiciansontherecord.com. If you're enjoying the interviews and the podcast, thank you so much for being here. Please share them with someone that you know would love them too. Until next time, thanks for listening. I'm David Ward for Musicians on the Record. 